Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. I like to say the only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. I love introducing you to your next favorite author on this podcast, and today I'm returning to the work of one of my recently discovered favorite authors. I read Rebecca Roanhorse's story, Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience, TM, for you in Season 3, and Rebecca's work, both short fiction and long form, has won a pile of awards in the last few years, and she recently knocked it out of the park with her book, Trail of Lightning which I loved. But she's not one to rest on her laurels, so she's publishing a new novel, Black Sun, which is out October 13th. Lucky us, and more on that later. Today's story is wherein Abigail Fields recalls her first death and subsequently her best life. It's historical fiction mixed in with the speculative. The story was previously published in A Phoenix First Must Burn, edited by Patrice Caldwell. It's now out in ebook, hardcover, and audiobook formats. Rebecca's story is set in the late 19th century in New Mexico in an all black settlement, and we open on the eponymous Abigail Fields. She is a 16 year old girl who's just been shot and decides to make a trade in exchange for her life. Please check out the written content advisory if you are so inclined. And if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. Wherein Abigail Fields recalls her first death and subsequently her best life by Rebecca Roanhorse. New Mexico Territory, 1880s. Winter. Abigail Fields was dying. Slowly, terribly. The gunshot wound in her stomach 
leaking, her lagging heart stretching too long between beats. The man who had shot her was named Barton Smalls. He was a coward of a white man, and he had abandoned her in the ice-crusted dirt road outside the all-black settlement of Pueblo Libre to die, no doubt believing that she would expire in the course of time and worry him no more. Abby hated to admit he might have the right of it. Breath was getting harder to come by, the space between the inhale and exhale as wide as the Rio Grande Valley where it cut through the high desert just below town and the far shore could barely be seen. But Abby kept on breathing anyway, hoping that Mo would come, that anyone would come, but Mo especially, as she'd like it to be her lovely brown face she saw last in this world. She imagined there weren't too many folks like her and Mo in heaven. Nothing in the Bible they'd made her read at the old nun house said much about black girls making it to the right hand of the Lord, at least to hear those old white spinsters at the nunnery tell it. If Abigail was honest with herself, the life she'd led so far was just as likely to land her somewhere a bit hotter, anyway. Good, then. Hell suited her just fine. Just fine, indeed. A distant howl broke her from her reverie, followed by a mob of high-pitched yips. A shiver of fear rolled through her body, but all she could do was blink up at the gray winter sky above her, catch the snow-capped tops of the distant mountain range out of the corner of her eye, feel the rough touch of dirt and the wet of melting ice beneath her back, and try to keep breathing. Snowflakes fell soft and silent, too silent. Silent meant everyone else in town was dead. Jolene at the schoolhouse and Francis and Lucy who ran the post, Mr. Henderson and Rose and Rose's sisters. Oh, and their little ones, too. Even Mo? No, not Mo. She'd been out hunting this morning, shooting grouse to fill their table. She was miles away. Should have been, at least. But she was expected back by now, wasn't she? Oh, Lord, not Mo. It would be too much. Another howl, closer now. Coyotes out there in the distance. Scavengers. Tricksters. Likely coming to this little township that was now only a buffet of fresh death. Perhaps it would be the scavengers and not Small's gunshot that took her life. Just like what had happened to her great-aunt Mary. Only Mary had survived a wolf attack and lived to tell the tale. But then Aunt Mary was a legend. And what was Abby but a 16-year-old girl shot in the belly by a coward of a white man waiting to die? 
Part of her thought that maybe she'd drawn Barton Smalls to her. Of all the settlements in all the places west of the Mississippi, she'd never thought to see him again. He had looked right at her when he pulled that trigger and then looked away, her face unrecognized, unremembered. But she remembered him. There was a penny in her pocket to make sure she always remembered. Let me live, Lord, Abby whispered through cracked and bloody lips. If you let me live, I will murder Barton Smalls. I will forsake love and match him hate for hate. Save me and I will become an instrument of your vengeance. I swear it. It was a bold prayer. And who was Abby to make it? She was not particularly brave. Not a gunslinger, just a girl, and not quite a woman at that. But she was determined, and she meant it with all her heart. And sometimes, and in some places, that's enough. It went without saying that hate and vengeance were not sentiments she'd learned from the nuns at the convent, so their God did not hear her. But there were other things in the desert, listening. They did not mind hate. They held no fault with vengeance. They found her offering pleasing and struck the deal. Abigail knew the moment it happened. She felt the covenant take root in her bones. Her breathing eased. The wound in her side knit closed. Her heartbeat became strong and steady. She thought to cry out, and perhaps she did, with only the scavengers and the tricksters and the dead to hear her. And that, too, was enough. The sun crawled across the sky, and Abby faded in and out of consciousness. After a while, she felt something heavy and warm fall across her body. A smell of wool and smoke filled her nose. Strong arms wrapped around her and lifted her up. They pressed her against warm skin, a wide chest. Her eyelids fluttered open. Deep brown eyes met hers, concern and relief battling in a lopsided grin. Moe's face was blood-spattered. Her own or someone else's? Now aren't you a blessed sight, Abby murmured. Shh, Moe said, her voice as warm and soft as the blanket she had wrapped her in. I came as fast as I could. I'm so sorry, Abby. I never should have left you. Mo was breathing hard, fear etched in her face. Her hand hovered over the blood-soaked place on the front of Abby's dress. Are you hurt? Nothing bad, she lied. Only grazed. I better check the wound. No. Abby calmed her voice. 
Mo's hand hadn't even moved. She wouldn't touch her without her say-so. Such manners. It's not necessary for you to fuss, Abby said lightly. She knew even if Mo looked, she'd find no trace of the bullet that had rent Abby earlier. The wound was gone. That was a fact. I'm shook up, Mo, but I'm fine. Just take me home. Of course, Mo said, abashed at her delay. Abby slipped her arm around Mo's neck to pull close to her. Is anyone else alive? Jolene, Francis, Rose and her sisters. Mo's face was as bleak as the rocky mountains behind them. They're all dead. Oh. I'm sorry, Abby, her voice hitched. It's too lawless out here. We'll have to move on to somewhere with a lawman, a, a real town with a sheriff to protect us. No, lawmen won't fix this. They cause more trouble than they cure, and you know that's true. We've got to do this ourselves. Mo fell silent, as she always did when Abby got it in her head about the evils of white men. But Mo hadn't seen that kind of ugliness firsthand, like Abby had. Hadn't watched what a mob could do. Of course there was more to it this time. There was Barton Smalls, and there was a promise. She didn't tell Mo of the pact she'd made with the desert. She knew Mo would disapprove of any truck with spirits. The nuns had done more of a brainwash on Mo than she cared to admit. Plus, any scheme that put Abby in danger would worry her. That was one of the things Abby liked best about Mo, her worry. And once Mo knew what she had planned for Barton Smalls, Mo would be worried plenty. Take it! Great Aunt Mary had insisted the day Abby left the nun house where her auntie worked. Take it and use it. This gun don't miss. All guns miss, Abby scoffed. This and won't. Aunt Mary said, her voice made rough from whiskey and homemade cigars. It's special. Kept me alive against a pack of wolves. Abby laughed and adjusted her lady's hat. It was a fine piece, made all of lace and silk, and no other girl in the convent had anything like it. Certainly not her aunt, whom she loved dearly, but whom Abby found a bit plain and uncouth. Ladies don't carry guns. Take it, Abigail. She thrust the revolver into her hands. And when the wolves come for you, you'll know what to do. Abby had taken it to be polite. After all, they were family. And perhaps she could sell the thing once she and Mo arrived in Pueblo Libre. She'd put the gun in a box and put the box in her steamer trunk and forgotten about it, mostly. So when the predators did come for her, she hadn't been ready. 
Wake up, Abby. Mo's voice called excitedly from the other room. The command was followed by a series of booms and bangs and a mild swear as something heavy struck the old pine floor, the dining room chair. Mo had a habit of knocking it over when she was excited. What in the world? Abby murmured, sitting up in bed. It had been a month since Barton Smalls had raised the settlement of Pueblo Libre, killing all but two of its residents. In that month, Mo had begged her a dozen times to leave, to move north to Trinidad or all the way up to Denver, where the mines were bustling and there was work to be had in the laundries and saloons. But Abby had refused. How do you think they'll treat us there? Abby had asked. Two young black women on their own, and no proper male guardian, and not a dress in sight for you. They'll figure us out lickety-split. And then what? It's safer there. Safer? For whom? Abby asked, unrelenting, even though Mo was beginning to droop. Not us, Mo. But if we keep our heads down, don't cause trouble. No place is safer than right here, she lied, thinking only of her covenant and the blood she owed the desert. So we're staying. Abby, be reasonable. You don't like it? Then you're free to go. The words were an angry snarl, and Abby didn't mean them. Lord, she'd like to die if Mo left her. But she had made promises that couldn't be broken. And the reckoning was coming. She could feel it in the soles of her feet when she walked the open desert. In the cries of birds that circled the small graveyard where they had buried the dead. In the rush of wind through the door that Mo had left open in her haste. And when her palm cupped around her penny. Abby! Mo called again as she burst into the bedroom. She had an envelope in her hand. Not too large, but not small either. Whatever was in there was making Mo dance with excitement like she had bees in her bonnet. Abby chuckled to herself. Mo in a bonnet? That would be a sight. What is it? I got you a present. Well, us. I got us a present. The girl was practically bouncing in place as she presented the packet to Abby. Abby grinned. What is it? Open it. Abby kept a small knife in her pocket, and she slid it out now to slice open the envelope. Mo's joy was infectious, and Abby couldn't help but grin along until she saw what was inside. A ticket to Los Angeles? Two tickets. One for me and one for you. Now don't say no yet, Mo rushed on. I know you're not keen on Colorado, but Los Angeles was founded by black folks, just like us. It's a place we could be welcomed. And it's right near the ocean. You told me you always wanted to see the ocean. I do, Abby admitted. See, 
and the new train tracks that the Santa Fe Railway built go right there. And it took some doing. But I got us tickets. We leave tomorrow. We can start over. Live how we want to live. She grasped Abby by the arms. Come with me, Abby. Say yes. Abby wanted to. So much her heart hurt just thinking about saying no. But no is what she had to say. Why not? Mo cried, throwing her hands up in frustration. What is so special about staying here? What hold does this place have on you? Abby opened her mouth, but she didn't have to answer. The desert answered for her with a gale of hot wind on a winter's day. The chorus of coyote song, a low rumble of thunder across the mountains. Mo rubbed her arms, chilled despite the gust of heat, and looked out the window. Is someone coming? She whispered. Abby didn't have to answer that either. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. And every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire. Michelle Obama, to reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Because stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipt. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipt. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipt.com. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, They'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.
Let's get back to our story. A gun? Abby, Mo cried. Not just any gun, Abby countered, lifting the box that held the revolver from her steamer trunk, where it had lain since they'd come to Pueblo Libre. A special gun. All guns are the same. This was a gift from my great Aunt Mary. She told me it couldn't miss. All guns miss, Abby grinned. That's what I told her, too. Barton Smalls is an outlaw and a sharpshooter by reputation. Plus, he won't come alone, Abby. To face him and his men down with one gun, it's suicide. I'm not afraid of a little death. There's a perfectly good train ticket to somewhere green and beautiful and safe lying on the kitchen table. Pick it up and claim it. And come with me. Abby opened the chamber of the 38 revolver. You know, they call this gun the lemon squeezer, she told Mo. On account of the way you must squeeze the grip to pull the trigger. Mo stared at her. Are you even listening to me? I already told you. I know your great Aunt Mary. She would have stayed and fought, but she ain't here. And besides, that's a maybe. You don't know. She might have gone to Los Angeles, too. Abby smiled, sadness warring with resignation. The other girl deflated like somebody had let the air out of her. Please, come. Maybe in the spring, after I've taken care of things here. But you can't stay here alone. Who's going to keep you safe? Abby patted the box that held the revolver. Aunt Mary. The walk back from the train station was long and lonely. Tearful promises had been made. Not the kind a dying girl makes to the desert. The kind two girls in love make to each other. Hopeful, full of dreams. I have forsaken love, Abby thought to herself, for a chance at revenge. Soon, the desert whispered, and the desert never lied. Barton Smalls was in her dreams, not looking as he had when he rode into Pueblo Libre, but as he had back in Texas, when Abby still lived with her mama and hadn't been sent to Aunt Mary's and the nuns yet. Young, light-haired, and dark-eyed, a handsome man, at least in her child's eye. He'd been one of the men who'd come for her daddy, not screaming and ugly like the others, their voices screeching demands for blood. But he was there just the same, guilty just the same. Smalls had watched them take Daddy away, and when he'd seen her watching him, he'd flipped her a penny, a real copper penny, and laughed as it fell at her feet. 
She'd never forgotten his face or that contemptuous penny or the star he'd worn on his chest. And she'd never told Mo about any of it. How Smalls was the reason she knew lawmen couldn't be trusted and that you couldn't find safety in towns. That maybe there was no safety but the kind you made yourself and even that had a way of failing sometimes. But then... Maybe safety was overrated, and a girl had to embrace danger if she wanted to survive. And maybe survival itself was overrated, and a girl had not to fear death, and that's the best she could do sometimes. Abby awoke with a start, bolted straight out of bed like the devil was on her heels, and maybe he was. Barton Smalls was coming. She fumbled the covers away, dressed hurriedly in trousers and a long coat. The lemon squeezer rested in its box, and she claimed it and the single bullet, chambering it before she left the house. The sun was barely a glow of white on the horizon when she came to the road. She stood resolute in the very place he had left her to die. The earth knew her, recognized her by blood and bone, and welcomed her back to finish what had been started. Mo was wrong. Barton Smalls came alone, riding an alabaster mare and wearing a white church suit, a pale rider on a white horse. His hair was unkempt and his eyes were wild. There were places on his face where he had scratched the skin clean off and sores ran yellow with pus. He was skeleton thin and his hands trembled around the reins that threatened to fall from loose fingers. Abby paused. This was the man who had almost ended her life? Who had haunted her nightmares and kept her from her love? This was the thing she had feared since she was a child. What's wrong with you? She asked, her voice carrying across the emptiness between them. Barton didn't answer, and at first she thought he didn't hear her. But his brow lifted, his eyes turned in her direction, and the corners of his mouth tilted up. Don't I know you? He asked in a voice slurred from pain and drink and the business of dying. Abby took a step back, horrified. Had he finally recognized her? The penny was hot in her pocket, next to the lemon squeezer. Barton's head rolled on its neck. Don't I know this place? You have a sickness. Abby shouted, raising the revolver. The plague! But even as she said it, she knew that wasn't it. The desert stripped a man of his pretenses. Barton Smalls had always been rotten underneath. Only now, it showed through. They're all dead, Barton said, his gaze falling earthward. Old Charlie and Dewey... The other boys, all dead. 
Then why do you come? Desert's been calling my name. Abby gasped. Could it be her? The covenant she made? Or even... Do you know who I am? She asked. Do you recognize my face? He peered at her leaning precariously over his horse, and she held her breath, waiting. After a moment, he shook his head. Can't say I do. In a way, it was a relief, she supposed. It meant he hadn't come to Pueblo Libre because of her. This was just another black settlement to terrorize for him. Her friends here just nameless lives stolen. She still held the gun, but she was unsure now what to do. Now that the moment had come, it didn't tempt like it had before. Smalls was wretched inside and out, and she need not end his life to prove that. Her free hand went to the penny in her pocket. She thought about giving it back, throwing it in his face, screaming that he might not remember her, but she sure as hell remembered him. And then pulling the trigger on the lemon squeezer to make it bark lead until Barton Smalls was dead. But she also thought of Moe's eyes when she'd boarded that train, the way her entire face had flushed hot when she leaned in to kiss her. Even though it was chased, a brush of lips against her cheek, it was enough to make Abby warm. Mo who had believed in a future. Mo, who even now was somewhere far from the desert. Mo, who would not want this man's death to stain her hands. Abby lowered the gun. I'm too good for you, Barton Smalls. You stay right here and rot away and die. Let the desert keep calling your name until it swallows you whole. I'm done with it. And she turned her back on Barton Smalls. The desert pulled at her feet, whispered words of covenant, dark promises, stolen life that she had bartered for but not yet earned. Distant coyote howls broke across the Rio Grande in the valley below town. The rumble started far off and closed in fast. It took Barton by surprise, knocking him from his horse. He lay unmoving on the ground, on the road where he'd once left her. She watched in horror as he seemed to deflate, the life draining out of him. And then his skin bubbled and split filled again, but not with Barton Smalls. Something else inhabited his body now, and it rose up on coltish legs and reached out over long arms and blew hot breath across her face. Colorless eyes 
caught her gaze, and a gaping hole of a mouth spoke. You promised! You have your life, she said. Take Smalls. Be done with me. Still hungry. And you promised. The creature was greedy, and Abby was not impressed. She raised the lemon squeezer. The gun Aunt Mary said never missed. Pointed it at the thing that had been Barton Smalls. I changed my mind. She pulled the trigger. Morning, ma'am. Conductor greeted her as she stepped on the train. He motioned for the younger man next to him to take her steamer, and he dutifully complied. Abby handed him her ticket for inspection. You heading to Los Angeles? Abby nodded. You have friends there? Someone special, who I hope will be my family. Someday. A sweetheart, he said with a knowing wink. Well, they'll be mighty happy to see you. He gestured down the aisle, indicating the seat assigned to her. Get comfortable, and I'll let you know when supper is served. How long is the trip? She asked, taking her seat. Eh, not too long. And the scenery is quite something. We'll pass right by the Grand Canyon. Abby dug into her pocket and flipped the young man who took her steamer a penny. He grabbed it out of the air and bobbed his head, grateful for the tip. Abby pulled down the window shade. I don't care much for the desert scenery, she said. But I'm quite looking forward to the ocean. You know what's interesting about this story to me is is that Rebecca has written this period piece, but I guess in the in the true spirit of speculative fiction, the world that these girls live in and and the way they respond to this world is is not typical of how you would expect for two black women in the 1880s to speak and respond. I mean, I I I I get that they were educated by nuns in this in this Catholic school. Um, I love the way she took historic liberties with the characters and had them respond to their situation 
in what I feel is a very heroic manner. It tickles me when, when writers do the unexpected like that. And Rebecca Roanhorse is certainly a writer that continues to surprise me. The other thing that I just want to make note of in this story is the feeling that I had when Abigail is talking about not being able to trust law enforcement. I know that that was as true in the 1880s as it is today. It is difficult, if not impossible, for people of color to trust law enforcement. I'm heartened, though, that it feels like folks are beginning to get it. Folks are beginning to incorporate that into their worldview, that it's simply different for people of color, and then different again for people of color who are women. I wonder, though, if we really have the courage to do the necessary work, the courage to dismantle hundreds of years of institutionalized thinking, to disassemble the conditioning that we have all been subject to by decades and decades of news narratives, advertising, centering whiteness in this world is the default. And I'm not trying to demonize white people. But I do hope you understand the depth of the anguish that black people in America feel. I got a a review on Apple Podcasts recently with a one rating, just a one star. And the reviewer said that um, that he was disappointed in me and that it seemed to him that I didn't like any skin but brown. And that, it made me stop for a moment and really examine, have I been anti-white in my commentary on these stories? I, I don't think so. Rather, I, I feel like what I have been expressing is a pro-black attitude that has taken me years to forge. I used to hate being black when I was a kid. It was painful to be othered in every situation, especially in school. It has taken me decades of hard work, process, and persistence to develop first an equanimity with and then an absolute pride in who I am. It is not easy in a society that continually tells you 
you are less than, to develop a healthy image, self-image. And yet we persist. We do, because there is no other alternative. Just like there is really no other alternative that I can tell, but that we really do find the commonality in one another. You know? I believe if I can sit long enough in the presence of someone with whom I do not agree, if we can sit together long enough to share our stories with each other, I believe that we will find commonality, at least something in common that we can build on. And that's how it's going to happen, y'all. That's how it has to happen. One conversation at a time, being open and honest and moving forward and having these conversations in spite of the discomfort it brings. Sitting in the discomfort is really difficult for human beings. It, it really is. I, I, I know. I, I, I face it every day. But sitting in the discomfort that we feel is really critically important because it is in that place of not being certain. We're, that's where we're open. When we're in that place of, I, I don't know what's going on here, this doesn't feel like the way I want it to feel, that's where opportunity lives for change, right? That's why this whole COVID thing has been so impactful, because we are all living in this moment of not knowing really what's going on and what's going to happen next. And in that unknowingness, there in lies the opportunity for change. By sitting for this protracted time in the state of not knowing, we have opened up to the what is happening next. And I think that's a, it's a good place for us to be. It's a chance to make it better for everybody. And there's nothing wrong with that. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith, the best in the business, y'all. And we have a new researcher this season. That's Lakeisha Lewis. So glad you are aboard, my sister. And our editing and sound design is by Justin Asher, one of our new kids on the block. And a big thank you to Rebecca Roanhorse for allowing me to read her story today. Very excited about the first installment of her new trilogy entitled Black Sun, it's inspired by the civilizations of the pre-Columbian Americas and woven into a tale of celestial prophecies, political intrigue, and forbidden magic. Black Sun is out on October 13th from Saga Press. And as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please recommend an episode to a friend who you think might enjoy it. You can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And why not include a story suggestion for us? We love them, we read them, we use them. And if you would prefer to listen to episodes ad-free and listen to exclusive bonus author interviews, you can do that on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar to start your free trial. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon, Josephine Maharana, she's the boss, and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVarBurton.com. I will see you all next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 